To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up copies of Health Communism and Jules's new book officially released tomorrow, January 30th, called A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. So on today's episode, I am joined by my co-hosts, Abby Cardis. Hello. And of course, Jules Gilpeterson. Go Lady Death Panel. <laughs> Lady Death Panel. And the three of us today. LDP. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> LDP. The three of us today are going to be talking about the symbolism of masking now and before COVID. And we're going to be doing a close read of a new op-ed in the New York Times by none other than Pamela Paul which is a great example of the kind of ideological production that is going on, not just to undermine our current attempts to survive the COVID pandemic as the response is ground to dust and the pandemic as a virus continues, but also create a reality where no future health threat, disease, or emergency could reasonably demand the so-called illiberal public health measures now associated with the COVID pandemic, like masking, school closure, paying people to stay home, preventing evictions, generally pausing or slowing the economy, etc. But first, Jules, congrats on your book coming out tomorrow. It is so good. I'm reading it right now. It's beautifully written. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So excited for it to be in the world. Me too. It's so deeply researched, of course. I mean, it's you. And I think you've just made (laughs) such a path-breaking intervention here, not just in presenting like a very accessible, sharp, materialist, global history of trans misogyny, something that really did not exist until you wrote this book. You know, there are so few books that even touch on this topic, and yours is Mm. just very different categorically. You know, people have been like, oh, I got to pair it with Whipping Girl, and it's cute to see everyone posting like, well, you know, I think this one's going to kind of go way past and far beyond uh, where Serrano was going, you know. So, (laughs) um, you know, beyond what the book is, though, you know, the argument that you're making connecting trans misogyny to the practices of imperial statecraft in this book is so, so important. And so, well, I'll just put this in your own words, quote, instead of presuming trans femininity's coherence in advance and then using history to certify it, this book examines where and when trans femininity becomes a fault line in broader histories, including the repressive practices of colonial government, the regulation of sex work, the policing of urban space, and the line between the formal and informal economy. In this way, the method of this book is deceptively simple. It uses the history of trans misogyny to understand where trans feminized people were lit up by the clutches of violence and how they responded to its aggression. So yes, congrats, Jules. And listeners, if you've not ordered her book yet, what are you waiting for? <laughs> no, and I I know we'll we'll cook up some a little more book-related content um soon. So um but yeah, you know, it's true. It's like 
it, it just I hadn't thought of this connection until we we're sitting down to record today. But you know, moving towards the conversation that we're we're about to have uh, around the production of anti-masking or you know the the strange ideological framing of public health intervention as illiberal. It just kind of gets back to this like common question that I think is always so helpful to just slow down and investigate, which is like, how is this thing that we're all consumed by right now? Like, what if it was formed out of an entirely separate thing that had nothing to do with the ostensible subject matter, right? It's like trans misogyny. You think it's all about like, who gets to be a woman or like (laughs) transphobia as some kind of like religious bigotry. But for me to say like, actually, it was invented by colonial states. Uh, you know, it was invented for other purposes and then over time morphed into this thing that we recognize today. And that's partly what makes it ideological, right? It's not logical. It's not rational. It has its own internal logic, but that's a logic that actually remade what counts as reality. And it you know, allows us to distort the empirical state of things in the world and make them appear otherwise. And that seems like in some ways, you know, our task is is to be able to pick that apart and understand how that happened because we take issue with it. And that seems like, you know, I don't know, just uh, feels like a, a death panel kind of evergreen point, but one that's so important when it comes to, to understanding the pandemic. Absolutely. And honestly, I, I mean, throughout the preparation for this episode, your book has been on my mind, Jules. And so I'm so, so excited for it to be out in the world and for folks to finally get a chance to read it, too. Uh, Yeah. Congratulations, Jules. I'm so, 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 so excited to read the book. Well, so to unceremoniously barrel us forward to Pamela Paul, because I think we could try and like waste time and avoid talking about her for hours if we weren't careful. Um, (laughs) As a result of the COVID pandemic, face masks have become one of the most visible everyday symbols of pandemic time, of the pandemic state of emergency, of the COVID discourse, right? This is Something that we're going to talk about today a little differently than a lot of the ways we've talked about it before. In some sense, we have gotten into a little bit of this throughout literally hundreds of episodes uh, throughout the last four years. Mm. But it's going to be really nice today to kind of take all these different threads and bring them together to talk about the symbolism of masking and also how the symbolism of masking is currently shifting right now and why it's shifting towards what. So while discussions about masking since the beginning of the ongoing pandemic often have revolved around, you know, numerically mediated debates regarding efficacy. Today, we're going to look elsewhere, which is the kind of social and symbolic meaning of wearing masks, face coverings, respirators, PPE, N95, KN95, you know, just general protective gear in response to outbreaks of infectious disease and how that symbolism impacts every single pandemic intervention. The All the different Swiss cheese layers of protection become subject to the shadow of negative mask symbolism that we're going to be pushing back on and sort of breaking down today. So, you know, when we study why something happens or doesn't happen in a society, we have to consider both, I guess, to kind of riff on Jules's language from her book earlier, both the social influences on individual actions and the limits that are placed on those actions with a focus on making sure to not presume a coherence of meaning in advance, not to take Mm. that as a kind of natural phenomenon, but to really look to history, medical sociology in our case today, to 
sort of look at what are the kind of underlying dynamics and ideas actually caught up in this. We're really looking at using these things to peer beyond the sort of supposedly natural causes or origin points of this discourse. The idea that, you know, masking inherently, uh, for example, is something that is antisocial or communicates mm. disconnection from one another, for example. When it comes to masking, the kind of sociological argument for collective care is really drowned out by conversations about what to do about how to reshape the kind of so-called illiberal public health practices away from communal impulses. So basically what we're going to do is we're going to do some critical discourse analysis. And what we're after today is to basically discuss two questions. How does mass symbolism shape the process through which dominant reality comes into being? affecting the pandemic response in terms of both culture and policy. And then the second question is sort of what symbols are necessary that we need to associate with masking in order to influence the meaning of masking in a positive way, signifying a way of taking care of each other, of reducing each other's risks. It's currently in flux. So sort of how do we really engage directly with the symbolism of masking to help make our demands for pandemic protections and community care part of dominant reality. So we're going to start with some first thoughts on what we're going to try and get at today. Then we're going to talk through this concrete example, a Pamela Paul op-ed in the New York Times. And while that's short, we will take our dear time with it. <laughs> it gives us a really good framework to bring in these moments and insights from the social and political history of masking as a kind of protective measure against disease and how that history has factored into the sort of contemporary modes of statecraft and manufacturing of consent that we're up against in the ongoing COVID crises, global crises. So just to sort of open it up, any first thoughts on sort of how we're tackling the problem here that I didn't get a chance to touch on that we want to make sure to address up front? I think that one maybe subtle thing that I kind of want to bring in as to the perspective that I'm bringing to this, because this is pretty far outside my area of expertise. I think a lot about this stuff, but I don't feel <laughs> legible as like a interlocutor on this subject necessarily. But what I am trying to bring to this discussion is the understanding that I am working on developing for myself right now about ideology and ideological processes and um, a lot of this like discourse and a lot of things tend to treat the questions that we are going to get into as like simply arguments. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, OK, I'm making an argument. You're making an argument like here we are in the good old marketplace of ideas. And, <laughs> you know, like may the best argument win and the way around, you know, a wrong argument is a better argument and, you know, all this kind of like rhetorical stuff. And I think that when we're talking about ideology or ideological processes, we're not talking about arguments. You know, we're not talking about arguments on the merits. Like we're actually talking about pretty deeply embedded social process that that involves mm. all of us. And that is very boring, but that's kind of just the only thing I wanted to get out right uh, at the beginning. No, it's not boring. I mean, it's, <laughs> well, this is why we have to look at Pamela Paul, right? As so much of the sort of public discourse, the media discourse, the public health kind of policy facing discourse, and then also like the, the speech that politicians and other people engage in, the sort of public discourse around masking, is a contest over like over over reason, by which I mean like so much mm -hmm. of so much mm -hmm. of like what I've noticed about 
the kind of rhetoric and the set of statements that like justify why we can't wear masks supposedly, right? So much of it claims to be about almost like a data-driven fatalism, like, oh, either, either the extreme version is like masks don't work or something like that. But like the, the liberal version is, well, you know, you can't force people to do things. And the only way masking happens is like through some sort of dictatorship we apparently lived through for like one second, um, you know, in 2020 or something, you know, and then so many of the the claims though then toggle, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, People's claims in public often will toggle back and forth between people who are being reasonable, who are driven by facts, and people who are being unreasonable because they're emotional. So the charge will be like liberals, whoever those are, are so emotionally attached to domination. They love they love masks because they they love being dominated or something, or they like controlling <laughs> other people, right? Um, they like and, to be uh, bossy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just like, all. I guess all I want to say is like the co- great thing about the concept of ideology is it reminds just, us yeah. that like, you know, any claims based on reason, in fact, like are made true because they feel true. They have an emotional mm-hmm. component and it's not our job, um, which I think like a lot of commentators think it's their job to be like, we've got to take the emotion. We've got to get back to the science, right? As if the science wasn't an ideological project to begin with. Um, And it just made me think like, what of the annoying, I don't know, just one of the annoying tools stuck in my head, thanks to my PhD in the humanities is like, (laughs) I have sub psychoanalytic kind of idioms like lodged into my brain against my own will, but, but sometimes they're useful. And I was just thinking like, right, you'll see a lot of people claiming that masks couldn't possibly be symbolic as if they can't be metaphors for other things. They can only be literal. And so like, you know, there's like this weird denialism, like, no, 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 you're, you can't, you can't have like emotional or feelings attached to like what we do. We can't like say we all should mask or like we're all going to mask at this event because we care about each other. That's wrong. It can only be a tool. And like, I just think there's a way in which sometimes because like the virus is invisible and like exposure and, and transmission are all happening on a scale we cannot perceive, uh, mm-hmm. but like masks can be perceived at least you know they they have a visual register you can see them right Um, or like they can be seen um that just feels to be like one of the actual emotional psychological dynamics at play here that is very much politicized is like they are a material tangible reminder (laughs) Um, and so they can carry all this like meaning and baggage um that goes well beyond their utility anyways i'm getting way ahead of myself Uh, but just no they can't (laughs) i have technocrat brain carl jung man and his symbols masks aren't in there as far as i know okay all the symbols (laughs) known to humankind are written down in Mm -hmm. that book okay Um, Well, and I I think what you both are kind of getting at is in some ways when we're talking about getting people to mask, not getting people to mask, you know, or rather getting people to mask or getting people to not mask, because there's there's a tremendous amount of social pressure in both ways that are just kind of swirling. Unfortunately, there is way, way more social pressure in the getting people to not mask camp than there is in the getting people to mask camp. And, you know, the social and symbolic aspects of wearing a mask are ignored or only brought up in a negative way. And again, if you do otherwise and breach those norms, right, like I did recently in a Twitter thread of mine, I was talking about masking 
um, in a way that was quite calmly refuting some anti-mask rage bait that was posted by Brownstone <laughs> Institute and Great Barrington Declaration pro let it rip libertarian Jeffrey Tucker. Um, and Tucker was like, oh, well, I'll just read what he said. He said, do you know, do people know how insulting it is to be to geez, let me start again. He says, do people know how insulting it is to put on a mask when you come near? It's like saying, I suspect that you are diseased and I don't want your filth near my body. Never mind that it doesn't work. It's ruinous to friendship. So I just like pushed back on it and, it, you know, just sort of saying, you know, masking is not ruinous to friendship. It's a dis- friendship. Right. It facilitates <laughs> it. Solidarity. Right. And anytime you say something positive about masking on the Internet, people show up and lose their shit. Many of them liberals, not just mm-hmm. the kind of rabid conservatives who are like, how dare you assert that masking, you know, has positive symbolism associated with it? Like, how dare you say that masking is a demonstration of mutual care? Like, it's not just conservatives. It's liberals. Um, And sometimes leftists. And the point I'm getting at is that like masks mean way more than anti-mask and mask skeptics are comfortable admitting or are perhaps aware of, Um, you know, in terms of kind of like the negative symbolism, by which I mean, like the kind of symbolism that reinforces the need for forced exposure to COVID and other diseases, the lack of a need to protect each other and reduce each other's risk. You know, all of these things are on heavy display in this Pamela Paul piece. And Mm -hmm. underlying many of these sort of common sense truths against masking are these really fascinating connections to, you know, the longer history of masks and symbolism that brings us to really like notions of disease that actually go back to the Black Plague. And of course, there's also racism, imperialism, xenophobia, anti-communism, all tied up in these negative symbols that are connected to face masks, PPE, anti-epidemic protections. And it's just so interesting to kind of look at these many other moments in history and culture before the COVID pandemic and also see not just how there's like these echoes to the past, but also that we are in this moment of kind of active renegotiation. And it's a really important time for kind of the creation and assertion of positive symbols with regard Mm -hmm. to masking. So a thought that literally just popped into my head while you were saying this in preparation for this episode, you know, I was doing some searching around, riffling through PubMed and a few other places, trying to just look at, you know, okay, well, what's out there about mask wearing behaviors and things like that? Now, this came from a type of kind of quantitative analysis that I actually don't really love, but I read a couple of papers, not sociological papers, not trying to get at all into like the meaning of masking or anything, just simply like, okay, what, you know, attributes of people are associated with mask wearing behavior or more positive attitudes towards masks? And one of the biggest predictors of mask wearing behavior, you know, positive or, you know, like wearing masks or not wearing masks, like positive or negative attitudes is risk perception. Mm -hmm. Um, A huge function ideologically that has to do with masking discourse, a huge function of what the Biden administration has been doing, their pandemic policy, you know, kind of as a as a whole, you know, like as a as a gestalt or whatever, is to give us all sorts of ideas about what risk is and what our risk is, and generally about risk. And something that I think emerges from the very few sort of like papers from the the sociology side of the literature that I've read about masking behavior is in a lot of contexts, it's like, oh, you know, masking, it's like an individual action, you know, like masking becomes 
or can become popular in places where, you know, people are really being, as they have been through the Biden administration pandemic response, being really licensed and really, you know, responsibilized to kind of manage their own risk and try to survive, you know, like a very risky situation where the state has kind of like withdrawn its support yes. from the provision of a safe environment or whatever. And so I think that some of this now I'm, I'm kind of speculating, but uh, that's OK. I kind of feel like some of what's going on with this liberal upset, you know, about even discussing, you know, like even talking about masks as having a positive valence of meaning, you know what I mean? Or valences of meaning that that could be construed as positive, you know, by different people in different times. I think acknowledging the meanings of masking means acknowledging that like the world is in fact risky and not under control. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. that like this like technocratic project has really, really failed. And, you know, people say this, oh, like masks are a reminder of the pandemic and that's why we have to get away from them. And they are, but it's more, you know, everyone knows that we're still in a pandemic. You know what I mean? Everyone has fucking COVID right now. Like <laughs> they're, they're also just a reminder of like how inadequate, you know, like I feel like liberals really take the mask as a reminder. It's like, oh, well, how dare you notice that the world is still risky, you know, and that our that the tools haven't worked and that our schemes to like manage nature and manage the population haven't really worked out, um, you know, the way that we expect them to and the, and the way that our worldview kind of needs them to. So that's my that's my general thought about anti-masking ideology and where it's sort of coming from, because I keep getting hung up on this, you know, with these um, these liberals just having absolute tantrums about, you know, these really kind of abstract discussions about like, well, what does it mean to mask? Um, and I think that some of it is coming from from there. Well, I yeah. think you're right that there is a there is a kind of promise that people would like to maintain the suspension of disbelief that that promise hasn't been broken. Right. And that's the mm -hmm. idea that the Democratic Party in reasserting power, taking power back from the Trump administration, back from the Republicans in the executive branch, that that would restore safety, normalcy, and the baseline level of kind of risk and outrage that the average liberal has to kind of deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a mm -hmm. promise for like comfort, less risk, um, you know, nostalgia, and a promise like reduction in cognitive load of things that you need to worry about, right? And I, I think really what you see is so many people sort of struggling violently and desperately up against like the the very real obvious proof in violence and in social murder and in volume of sickness and lost wages and precarity and all of these different ways that they layer, right? Like the evidence is all in front of them and it it's I think so overwhelming that that's part of like how aggressive some of the resistance to really acknowledging reality is. It's like people who in some ways are watching the movie of the Biden administration instead of like looking at what is actually happening. That's such a, that's such an evocative turn of phrase, watching the movie of the Biden administration. <laughs> um, I wonder if this is like the perfect link to get into the Pamela Paul piece, because mm -hmm. I think it just functions so well in, in basically yeah. touching on almost everything we've set up here. But I was just, you know, staring at the title. Uh, and I wonder if the title is our first entry point. The title of this column from January 18th is When Public Health Loses the Public. And it just mm -hmm. seems like a perfect statement of this thesis. Uh, that, in fact, the role of public health, because it is uh, scientific in a positivist sense, and that, you know, mm -hmm. serves the rational 
uh, policy management of governance in the liberal democratic order, um, Mm -hmm. that public health, you know, should have just stuck to its facts, but it became emotional uh, and it went too far. It became illiberal, as Paul puts it, glossing a book that, that we'll get into. But then the thesis, right, is that public health went too far uh, and then the public withdrew its attachment and belief in public health, right? Uh, mm-hmm. As opposed to uh, the reverse, public health actually having served a political function all along <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's like directly mobilized by the state. <laughs> the um, government? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so instead of the public withdrawing its uh, belief in public health, in fact, the state utilized public health to, um, yes. to produce a withdrawal. To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to this and the rest of our catalog of patron-only episodes and be the first to get a new patron episode every Monday when it drops. With love, the Death Panel.